When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking, as usual, about Donald Trump. Could he really ban Muslims from entering the country if he were president? Sasha Abramsky says the answer is simple, yes. Also, we're still thinking about the Orlando shootings and what can be done about making it harder to get military-style assault weapons. We'll ask David Cole, the nation's legal affairs correspondent, about lessons for the left from the success of the NRA. But first, what's next for the Bernie movement? Millions of voters, tens of thousands of trained organizers could accomplish a lot, not just this year, but in the future of American politics. That question was the focus of a big gathering in Chicago last weekend, the People's Summit. It was called by National Nurses United, the nation's largest organization of nurses, and the first national union to back Bernie for president last year. For comment, we turn to Roseanne DeMauro. She's executive director of National Nurses United. Roseanne, we've talked about you on this show often, so it's a special pleasure to say welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. I appreciate the nation very much. 3,000 people came to the People's Summit last weekend in Chicago. The New York Times called them Bernie Sanders diehards. Is that the way you would describe the People's Summit? I, could, I think we could face it that way. I think we owe Bernie a world of debt. I mean, we have been drowning in the sea of political mediocrity for about the last 40 years, <laughs> and Bernie broke through that. He broke through that. And while there were many voices before Bernie and many movements that were in process before Bernie, it was Bernie who actually spent his last, you know, this year, I mean, a phenomenal year going into every community that he could possibly get to. He went right at the heart of the problem, which is social and economic inequality, and he didn't use jargon to cover it up. And so he broke through. We owe him a world of debt. Um, and yeah, so the so the the People Summit was you know all of these different organizations and groups that have been working politically, almost all of them, frankly, before Bernie. Um, Bernie was a vehicle for all of us to you know have a find a home to come together where we could have a, a focus, and that was the beauty of his campaign. But the um, the summit was you know in part about all that Bernie had done, but it moved far beyond that into what does our what is our movement? What is our movement? What does it look like? And how do we move together? And how do we keep it together um, through, you know, various mechanisms, right? So the electoral process, issue campaigns, uh, basically, you know, working up and down horizontally through the you know, United States from school boards to um, presidencies, if we have to, on the electoral level. But it was really kind of an, uh, I think fundamentally, it was an affirmation of the fact that there, there are movements and the, there are movements that aren't going to stop. And the question is really um, kind of a more tactical question, and that is how do we proceed together? 
The mainstream media made it seem like the biggest question the People Summit took up was whether Bernie supporters were going to refuse to vote for Hillary in November. Was was that the main issue at the People's Summit, in, in your view? Ironically, no, because it wasn't about electoral politics, frankly. It was about the movements that are out there, what they're doing um, at all levels, and how they're trying to grow and expand and sensitizing each other to the concerns that we all have as groups and then trying to figure out, you know, what are our common, what what will unite us? That, that's the that's the big question, and it's always a big question when you're trying to build a movement because, you know, a lot of times um, groups that are in social movements or in causes get boggled down with structure. And so what we were trying to do is to figure out, you know, how do we just pick this up right now and move with it? And, you know, let's just do this, basically. So there was just a it was a, it was it was one of the most wonderful meetings, if not the most wonderful meeting, I think, that I've been in in my life. You know, Friday night when it opened. There was kind of, a, you know, almost a little sadness about the fact that the campaign had been essentially taken from us. I mean, I don't think I don't I don't consider any loss here whatsoever. We were in the campaign for a year and I know what the DNC did to sabotage the campaign. Yeah. Um, but and I think there was sadness about that, that, you know, if, if you lose, it's just like losing in sports. Right. If you lose a game and, you know, the other side basically outplayed you. You can live with that. You know, you might not like losing that game, but you can live with that. But this wasn't like that. It was just undignified the way everything happened against Bernie and the forces that colluded against Bernie. Um, and then even the progressive, the, the theoretically um, progressive groups that even though Bernie supported their issues even more than they support their own issues at this point, uh, they still wouldn't support him as a candidate. So there was all that kind of initial sadness. But, boy, that went away so fast. I mean, by Saturday, everyone was back to work. I mean, they were – everyone was, you know – people were talking to each other everywhere. It was almost like a celebration of a movement, and you could feel it on a very deep, visceral level. People were happy. There were a lot of educational courses there, very sophisticated educational courses there on the economy and – you know, neoliberal agenda and a variety of things, and people were attending those in mass. There was a civil disobedience class in preparation for the um, convention, the DNC convention. Democracy Spring put that on. And the, mo- the thing that was on everyone's mind more than anything is how do we continue? It was, it, at the end of it, it wasn't a focus on electoral politics. That was what was interesting. Well, the yeah. first thing that's going to happen is the Democratic National Convention, where there's a whole bunch of Bernie delegates who were elected in the primaries. Um, and I know one of the big questions is exactly what the priorities should be for for that fight inside the convention. And you are a very important person in this because you, I understand, testified before the platform committee at the beginning of the, the, the weekend. Tell us what, what that was like. This is kind of the opposite of the People's Convention. What's it like to appear before the Democratic Convention Platform Committee? You know, um, it was it was dreadful. <laughs> I'd like to say it wasn't, but it was, because they were trying to do what they've done to the, well, I, I say this lightly, left for decades, and that is to try to find commonality on grounds that were theirs. So you're supposed to say, it was a setup for me to say that the Democrats have done everything that they can to fight for health care for everyone and that the Democrat, that the ACA was good enough. And, and I wouldn't. And, and so what they've done, 
you know, they, they're setting up, and I see this for the convention coming, to progressive legislators to try to find common ground, people we've worked with, people we like, to say that it's all okay, and it's not okay. And I was insistent about that. It is not okay. And I knew the reason that I was excluded from, Bernie wanted me on the committee. Yeah. Um, the yeah. DNC refused to have me on the committee. And, uh, and, and, and they used the excuse, which is really amazing, that they didn't want someone from labor on the committee, which... The, the fact that the DNC could think that that was a valid excuse is what was, was stunning at first, right? Yeah. But it was really, they didn't want anyone who was going to fight with them. You know, I mean, they've got Cornell who's going to fight with them, obviously, and a number of other good people on that committee for Bernie. Cornell but West. Let, it, let, let me just underline, we're speaking here about Cornell West, one of our representatives at the platform. Right. Well, I mean, you know, you know how much they don't want us to talk about single payer when they choose Cornell West instead of me. Yeah. So what that says, what that says to me is finance on health care. You know, it's, it's one of the most profitable industries in the country. And finance is probably very well invested in the DNC. And, and you know, that's their turf. That's their terrain. The profiteering in health care, which is a national disgrace and causes people to die unnecessarily, you know, as the... Is, is what's the backdrop? Is the backdrop of healthcare? It, you know, it was just it was a microcosm of what's been going on for 40 years. To say we fought as hard as we can against the Republicans. And my, what I said, and, and I still mean that. Do what Bernie did. Get out in the field. Talk to the people. 58 percent of the people by the latest Gallup poll support single payer healthcare. Go find those people. Engage them. Bring them into the electoral world. You know, people who these legislators stay in D.C. and they talk each other down to the lowest common denominator and then congratulate themselves that they've done the best they can up against the horrible Republicans. The, the truth of the matter is the reason there are horrible Republicans is because they have they keep talking to each other rather than getting out here with the people like Bernie did and, and like Bernie will continue to do, I believe. And what did you tell the platform committee should be in the platform about health care? Single payer health care. And there's no exception. If, if they don't fight for single-payer health care, that means that caregivers like nurses, like doctors, are having to make choices among people's lives. And what happens is they don't want to make choices. They want everyone to have one standard of care, a single standard of care, the best care in the country. Everyone, regardless of their status, economic status, deserves the same level of health care. And what's happened is that with the ACA, premiums are going up 25%. The co-pays are outrageous. The standard of care is going down. People can't figure out how to get access health care, and millions are still are still left uninsured. That's not good enough. We're, you know, this country should have the best standard of care. Every other country, industrialized country, has figured out how to have a single payer health care system. Somehow, our legislators can't find their political will to get us there. That's what Bernie did. He 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 blew that thing all up. Then when he tried to get me on the platform committee, they denied that and. It makes perfect sense if, you, what, if you're looking for what they like is the dynamic status quo. See, we tried, but this is all we could achieve. That's been the narrative for so long, and I think that's gone now. But right now, you know, we're heading for the DNC. We're staying with Sanders. We're going to fight for our issues, and we're going to I, – I think it's going to be pretty dramatic what happens there, I imagine, because I, I can see people are training, you know, doing CD, tra- CD training and um, – there's going to be a lot of protests, and there's going to be a lot of marches outside. And then inside, and we've got a number, a large number of delegates for Bernie. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to have a fight on the, both on the rules, which will be, should we get rid of superdelegates, and should we open up all, um, 
all elections to independents because it's on you know the the primary the primary process is is almost bizarre at this stage of the game every state has different rules in in um in new york people had to register as an independent six months before the primary people didn't even know there was a primary or what the rules were so essentially the rules are are so rigged in terms of keeping the voices out and so how do you open that up that'll be a fight at the convention and then of course There'll be fights on all of the issues, and I mean, they'll be wide-ranging. And so what I assume is going to – and whatever happens on – the rules can be binding. The platform, we could win on the issues, but it's not binding, so that's, that's an important point. We can win symbolic victories, and we can put it in the platform document, but the president can ignore those. Basically, still, we have the moral high ground, I suppose, to go out and campaign on those issues. But – um, those will range. Those will be all the concerns, I, I believe, that we've been addressing in this uh, last year in the Sanders campaign that many of us in the progressive movement have been addressing for years. But there's, I, we're in a different time. I, that's one thing I really you know, would like to take this time to say that sure. I felt that I just felt that, you know, there are no jobs. Jobs are going away. And there's not like, uh, you know, all of the all of the buying off of the progressive forces in Washington, D.C. to make us think that life is OK. That's just blown. That's gone. And people's I mean, just on objective material consequences of this economy based upon, you know, a Wall Street economy, people aren't going to have jobs. And when they're not going to have jobs, they're going to fight. And you can't gloss that over. Their lives are getting worse. Their hope is gone. People are ready to fight, and I think this is there's a new commitment. It was a, a, a it was one of the most respectful meetings I've ever been in on the left. I have to say, I mean, you know, usually there's like kind of all these arguments going on and fights going on, and there were differences in the room, but they were handled so respectfully. It's like we've reached a different kind of plateau in terms of how serious we have to be in knowing that we have to engage and we have to engage collectively. So I'm feeling, irrespective of what happens at the Democratic Party convention, I think there's something pretty profound. There's something going on here, and it's, it's big. Roseanne DeMauro, she's Executive Director of National Nurses United. Roseanne, thanks so much for talking with us today. God, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. We're still thinking about the Orlando shootings, the worst act of terrorism in the United States since September 11, 2001, and the deadliest attack on a gay target in American history. People, of course, are asking what can be done, and the political focus has been on banning assault weapons like the one that made it possible to kill 49 people in a few minutes. It's legal to buy assault weapons in most states. That's because of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. What can the left learn from their success? For some answers, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent. He teaches constitutional law, national security, and criminal justice at Georgetown University Law Center. He's also a regular contributor to the New York Review. He's the author of eight books, most recently, Engines of Liberty, the Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, is it fair to say that the NRA is the most effective political organization in the United States today? I think it's the most effective civil liberties organization in the, in the, in the country today. Uh, and I think that's because they understand the 
democratic roots of constitutional rights. And please explain what you mean by the democratic roots. So they started as a, a not not a political group at all, as a marksmanship organization after the Civil War, um, founded by a couple of Union generals who were astounded at what bad shots the, their their soldiers were. Uh-huh. And it really wasn't it really wasn't until nineteen the 1970s that they. Uh, created a, a, a political uh, division uh, within the uh, NRA, uh, and that they took on um, as one of their central projects the defense of the right to bear arms, the individual right to bear arms. And at the time, the law was against them. Um, the constitutional law for a hundred years had been that there is the Second Amendment doesn't protect an individual right to bear arms. And so, if they just filed a case in federal court. Make, made legal arguments they were likely to lose, as many, many criminal defendants challenging gun laws had lost over the prior century. And so what they did was they engaged in an in a intensely political, incremental strategy, mostly focused at the state level, to develop the norm and the idea of uh, the individual right to bear arms in other, in forums other than the federal courts. And only when they had developed that norm in all of these other forums through po- politics, through the democratic process, was it then ripe for uh, the right to be recognized at the federal constitutional level. And just to underline how how big their victory was at the Supreme Court, we call it the Heller decision in 2008, which was the first time the court said there was an individual right to own a gun, what was it that Chief Justice Warren Burger said about the argument that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual right to bear arms? Yeah, so in, in 1991, uh, Chief Justice Burger, who had just retired, he was a Republican justice appointed by Nixon. He, he said that the notion that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American people by a special interest group in his lifetime. Uh, and then 17 years later, the Supreme Court said not only is it not a fraud, but it is a part of our uh, Constitution, Constitution's Bill of Rights. You say what we can learn from the NRA is not to focus on the Supreme Court, but to act locally and especially in the states. The NRA is has a huge membership. Tell us a little bit about how how big is their membership and what do they do with their membership? Obviously, one of their one of their um, real strengths is that they have five million members. Uh, they have another uh, that's dues paying members. They have another about fifteen million people who consider themselves to be members but don't pay their dues. Uh, and the NRA would love to have their dues, but uh, they're they're actually very happy to have them consider themselves members um, because they are responsive to uh, NRA um, uh, essentially action alerts or requests to take to 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 vote in a particular way. And the NRA. Um, uses those members in a very uh, in a very specific way. So it grades every candidate for state or federal office 
on how they, you know, what their view is on guns. They then support whichever candidate has the better grade, regardless of party. They reach out to their members in each of the states and urge them to vote along these lines, and many of them do. And then when and if a proposal is put forward to restrict gun rights, they activate their members to inundate uh, the legislators in opposition, and when and if they propose uh, a, a, a legislative reform to expand gun rights, they activate their members to to reach out to the to, to the state legislatures, and they've been incredibly successful at, again at the state level. And so, what they've done is they have shown through incremental state level reform in favor of gun rights and against gun control they have shown their members their own power uh time and again they have um, mobilized them they've activated them and they have succeeded and part of the reason they've succeeded uh, is because the gun control organizations have until very recently focused on washington they've focused on congress and the white house uh, and have largely left the states to the NRA, so that the NRA is, in, in essence, running unopposed in most states. So they, they, they get their members in, in, interested, they get them to act, they then can show that they have succeeded, and that makes their members more and more likely to act in the next, uh, in the next case. And then they can deploy that uh, uh, at, at, the, at the federal level through Congress uh, and, and, and pressure on the executive as well. How did the NRA, you say the NRA started out for for 100 years, it was a marksmanship group and a gun safety group. What changed them? How did they get these millions of members into a, a political yeah. group? Many of the members joined, not because of a particular political inclination, but because they liked to shoot, liked to hunt. They were engaged, you know, that they, 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 the NRA was a sports club, essentially, and it has it has affiliates, you know, their, their affiliate in, in Florida is called the Unified Sportsmen of Florida. It's a, essentially a hunting organization, and a, um, a shooting, they run shooting competitions. So people get together around an activity, not so much around an idea. Then in 1968, uh, Congress uh, enacts the first major piece of gun control legislation at the federal level, the Gun Control Act, sparked by the assassinations of the, of, of the 60s, uh, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and the like. And it was really in response to that that, peop, that, that gun owners and, and, and NRA, the NRA as a body um, became uh, politicized and said, wait a minute, look, you know, now the gun control people are succeeding, and they're succeeding at the federal level. We need to do something uh, in, in, in response. And that's when they uh, transform the kind of the identity of the organization and focus on this notion of an individual right to bear arms and begin their campaign. But what I think is critical is that they begin the campaign in – it's, it's coordinated, but it is focused on the states as forums – where the, where they can find sympathetic audiences and they you know the great thing about the states is there are 50 of them and so you know you can you whatever your cause is you're likely to be able to find some states that are sympathetic and so you know the the the, the gun rights groups start in Florida and the south and 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 work their way around the country the the gay rights groups which did a similar thing on marriage equality started in New England and and worked their way around but the but the 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 sort of 
heterogeneity of the states allows for activists to sort of pick their forums, and that's a critically important way to kind of build the momentum that both sort of energizes your constituency and builds some kind of momentum towards uh, uh, towards national reform. Yes, yeah, some of our, our uh, friends and comrades think that because the Supreme Court recognized an individual right to uh, to own guns, that that's, that's the whole uh, ball game. But actually, the Constitution's Second Amendment still contains this phrase about a well-regulated uh, uh, militia, and the Supreme Court accepts all kinds of regulations. In some states, I know we record here in California, and California has banned military-style assault uh, weapons. I know Connecticut has, too, and the Supreme Court has said that's that's okay. They said that, what, just this week? Well, they, yeah, they, they declined to take up a case that had upheld uh, a ban on, uh, on semi-automatic, certain kinds of semi-automatic weapons. So, yeah, I, I, you know, the, on the one hand, the, the, so the court recognized a, a, an individual right to bear arms in 2008, um, and that does create some constraint on what polit- what 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 we what people who are in favor of gun control can achieve politically you you cannot enact a flat out ban on handguns that's what was struck down in the Heller case and similarly uh 2 years later in a case in in, in Chicago but there are a host of ways of regulating guns that the court in Heller indicated were lawful things like bans on particularly dangerous weapons, bans on bringing weapons into particularly sensitive places like public buildings or or airports or churches or or or, or what have you, um, uh, bans uh, or uh, licensing uh, requirements, um, background checks, bans on people uh, who who are particularly risky uh, being able to buy guns. All of that is is, is legal, uh, and and I and uh, my view is. In, in some sense, it's not the Second Amendment which is an impediment to gun control. It's the, the NRA's political power, which itself is a function not of the gun you know, industry's money, but of the democratic work that the NRA has done over the years um, at, 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 the, at the local retail level, which has created an activated membership committed to a particular idea uh, who, who know that they they have the ability to stop things from getting uh, enacted that would be constitutional and from getting uh, gun rights laws enacted that the Constitution would not require. So in some sense, the NRA is a more powerful protector, a guardian of the individual right to bear arms, even than the Supreme Court after the Supreme Court recognized the right. Uh, one more question. You said that one of the secrets of the NRA's uh, success is that they they present themselves as a sports club with the which has sponsors activities like going shooting. Gun control groups on the left can't really match that. Let's all get together and not go shooting. Do you have any solution uh, to this problem? I don't have a solution there, and I wouldn't say the NRA presents itself that way. That is what the, you know. The the NRA spends eighty to ninety percent of their uh, resources on activities, on gun activities, gun safety training, hunting uh, stuff, uh, shooting uh, ranges, shooting competitions. That's what they spend the bulk of their uh, resources on. It's not a cover for, for it is the principal activity. But that, that means that people identify 
uh, with the group through an activity rather yep. than through just an idea. And that's yeah. a really, it's hard for us to match that on the gun control side or on, uh, on a number of other uh, sides. But uh, creating a sense of identity around an issue is critically important. And again, I think the gay rights groups have done that uh, quite effectively. So the problem with guns is not with the Supreme Court. It's not with the Constitution. The gun problem is a political problem, and it has political solutions. Organize to fight the NRA and limit gun ownership in America, starting not in Congress, not at the Supreme Court, but locally and in the states. David Cole, his new book is Engines of Liberty. Read him in The Nation. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me, John. Donald Trump has defined himself around two proposals, build that wall to keep out Mexicans, including all those darn Mexican judges, and barring all Muslims from entering the country. His response to the killings in Orlando, the worst terrorist attack since 9-11, was to reiterate his proposal to ban Muslim immigrants and Muslim visitors from entry. To a lot of us, that seemed wildly impossible and almost certainly unconstitutional, just rhetoric intended to whip up anti-Muslim feeling. But could a President Trump actually do some or, or even most of what he proposes? For comment, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a reporter who writes often for The Nation and other publications, including The American Prospect. He's the author of seven books, including The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives, and an amazing memoir, The House of 20,000 Books. He also teaches writing at UC Davis. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, it's good to be on the show again. So wouldn't it be unconstitutional to ban Muslims from entering the United States? Wouldn't that be the kind of religious test that is expressly prohibited by the First Amendment? Well, you know, I went into this reporting thinking that. I thought, well, you know, Trump's a very unpleasant demagogue, and he says pretty much anything that comes into his head. And if he can gin up anger and rage against one group or another, he does so, and the consequences be damned. But actually, when I started researching this article... And I started talking to constitutional and immigration law experts. It turns out that a lot of the protections that we assume would stand in the way of something like this only apply to citizens. So, yes, if he were to introduce religion tests within America, where he was demanding that citizens tell the authorities what religions they were, it's almost certain that the courts would throw that out immediately. But if he said, look, we regard the Muslim religion or geographic regions within which a lot of Muslims live as national security threats, which is sort of how he's tailored his rhetoric in recent months. If he did that, he would have tremendous discretionary power to reshape immigration laws, to stop visitors coming in, to deny um, work visas and so on and so forth. Now, it doesn't mean it wouldn't create absolute chaos in the immigration system. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't be subject to one lawsuit after the next after the next. It would. But in the meantime, there's nothing in the Constitution that would prevent Trump at least starting to go down that road. You see this in the past. You see it with the anti-Chinese laws. You see it with um, some of the quota laws that were put in place in the 1920s, that when a country decides to shut down one form or another of immigration, Usually the executive has a pretty good degree of discretion on that. And this is something that constitutional law professors say 
the president could do without Congress? Well, you know, I, I spoke to many constitutional law professors around the country, and there does seem to be a little bit of dispute about that. Some, some assume that what he would do is ask a Congress or try and intimidate a Congress into essentially declaring either the Islamic religion as a whole or particular political sects um, or followers of particular ayatollahs to be something like a totalitarian ideology. And th this is the um, way in which communists were, in theory anyway, kept out of the country during the Cold War, that Congress had defined the Communist Party as totalitarian and empowered immigration authorities to ask, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? So one school of thought is that somehow Trump would create this mechanism where the immigration authorities, the consulate officials, um, TSA officials, passport officials, and so on, would literally be asking a, a question essentially, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Islamic religion? Are you mm -hmm. now or have you ever been Muslim? Um, so one school of thought says, yes, there'd somehow have to be these religion tests that Congress would have to approve. And another school of thought says, well, actually, if the Justice Department, if the Trumpian Justice Department were to essentially say, we regard anybody from these countries or anybody espousing these religious beliefs to be contrary to the national interest, to be contrary to America's foreign policy objectives, then in theory they could do an end run around Congress on this. Now, obviously, all of this would be you know, both incredibly self-destructive to America's international image. It would also put America at odds with you know, a vast array of international organizations, including the United Nations, which is based in New York. But it probably, if Trump was really serious about this, he could probably at least make life miserable for would-be Muslim immigrants to this country. Yeah, I think the most impressive single statement in your article about this for the American prospect is nobody has a constitutional right to enter the United States if they're not a citizen. That's right. And, you know, we, we see this throughout history, that there have been these different restrictions placed on, as I said, different kinds of immigrants. So in the, the 1880s, Congress passed laws restricting the immigration of Chinese laborers. And we, we think of it these days as an anti-Chinese act, a Chinese Exclusion Act. But it had all sorts of exceptions. It let in Chinese merchants, it let in students, it let in ministers. It was specifically designed to bar laborers who were viewed as being a threat to homegrown American workers. So in, in that sense, it's much more akin to the, what Donald Trump's talking about regarding Mexican workers coming north to work in this country. Um, but then if you look at other time periods, there was obviously the um, period during World War II when Japanese, both citizens and non-citizens, were interned in the country. So that, that's one sort of obvious historical antecedent to this. Um, during the Iranian hostage crisis, Iranian students working in the country or studying in the country were registered and then deported. Um, the, and then, then you look at these other groups, which aren't necessarily around immigration. If you look in the 19th century, country was very, very nervous about the spread of Mormon ideology and Mormon religion. And Congress passed a bunch of laws that ostensibly were against polygamy, but in practice were designed to restrict the franchise and, resign the, and restrict the civil rights of Mormons. Um, there's been historically a tremendous body of laws passed against homosexuals, against homosexuals in the workplace, against homosexuals even being allowed to migrate into the country and so on. And so when you look at these different sort of areas that Trump could pull on or Trumpian legal scholars could pull on if they were really serious about how do you ban 1.4 billion people, 
turns out you can. You can find these different public health arguments. You can find these different national security arguments. You can find these different arguments about protecting the American workforce. And oftentimes the courts, despite all of the protections, despite all of the, in theory, constitutional guarantees around these kind of things, oftentimes the courts sway with public opinion. And so one of the things I was talking about in my article is, well, look, if you whip up a real national hysteria about Muslim fifth columnists, about people living in this country or trying to come into this country who are essentially sleepers in league with terrorist organizations, if you whip up that kind of hysteria, and if you get the public to put pressure on Congress and the public to put pressure on the courts, oftentimes those institutions don't actually stand up to executive authority. And I think one of the things that's tremendously concerning to me over the last few months is the Republican Party leadership, the the mainstream leadership of the Republican Party, time and again has said, well, we don't agree with Donald Trump on these positions. We think they're racist. We think they're dangerous to national security. We think they're, in some cases, unconstitutional. We think they're bigoted. But we're going to support him anyway on the assumption that he's better than Hillary Clinton and we can rein him in through Congress and through the courts. The danger is if you unleash a demagogue like that onto the political process, demagogues are very, very good at playing the public. They're very good at manipulating public opinion. They're very good at ginning up fear and insecurity. That's, that's their bread and butter. If you give someone like Donald Trump an in into the political process, he will run roughshod over any restraints, whether it's constitutional restraints or whether it's congressional restraints. He will run roughshod over those restraints. So the idea the Republicans can say, well, we don't like any of this, but we're going to try and get him elected anyway. To me, that is historically irresponsible. And it's something that generations from now, historians covering our time period are going to write about with absolute moral opprobrium. Yeah, let's talk about a couple of these historical uh, precedents in, in a little more detail. You mentioned the internment of all people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast during World War II, 110,000 people. I think two-thirds of them were American citizens. That did go to the Supreme Court, the Korematsu decision. And remind us what the Supreme Court said in in response to the the claim that it's illegal to intern uh, American citizens uh, because of their ethnicity. Yeah, what happens is um, in February 1942, Roosevelt signs what's called Executive Order 9066, and it's the internment order. And it goes to court. Um, and the Supreme Court in 1944, it was a 6-3 decision, but the Supreme Court upheld the leg- legality of Japanese internment. Um, and what they said was it was a national security imperative. Um, there was also a case around the Iranian hostage crisis. It was called Narenji versus Civiletti. Same thing, the court held that the expulsion of Iranian students didn't violate the Equal Protection Clause. Now, the thing that's fascinating about both of these cases are they're what's called good law. So Dred Scott, which upholds slavery, is not good law. The Supreme Court doesn't quote it anymore in its decisions. But the Karamatsu case has been quoted very recently by the Supreme Court. So it's still law that is seen by the Supreme Court to be valid. Now, what that means is that if you had Trump coming in and saying, well, we regard the it doesn't have to be internment, we regard the barring of Muslims coming into this country as a matter of national security, that the Supreme Court might not agree with that, 
but they might use the Korematsu ruling and say, actually, we're going to give the government leeway in national security cases. Um, and the other thing is, we, you know, Trump's ideas aren't coming out of the blue. In the, in, the, in the wake of 2001, in the wake of the terrorist attacks of September 2001, there were a slew of programs that the government developed that were designed to register and to monitor people from certain countries. And they were almost overwhelmingly countries with Muslim majorities, which were seen to be incubators of terrorism. And a lot of those programs went through to 2011, so for 10 years. And some of those programs are still in place. So 15 years later, there's still a legal infrastructure in place that was created in the immediate aftermath of 2001 that produces an extraordinary degree of monitoring of people from certain countries. And more importantly, for the case of barring Muslims from the country, there are programs that essentially order immigration authorities to go slow in granting work visas and visitors visas to people from certain countries. And these are very secretive. The ACLU has filed Freedom of Information Act requests. A number of journalists have filed Freedom of Information Act requests. Nobody knows exactly how many people have been caught in these programs, but one estimate is that the Go Slow program, which is called CARP, the Controlled Application Review and Resolution Program, one estimate is that about 42,000 people have been impacted by that. So these are not insignificant numbers. They're nowhere near the numbers that you'd be talking about if Trump's policies were implemented. But we already have some of the legal infrastructure in place for this. And another and, one that I think we should recall is after 9-11, the United States rounded up tens of thousands of young Muslim men who were residents of the United States, some of whom were citizens, and uh, detained them without charge and eventually began deportation proceedings against 13,000 of them. None of them were ever found guilty of terrorism. They were The deportation proceedings were based mostly on technical violations, overstays, and that sort of thing. That's right. And I, I think, you know, when you look at Trump, it's tempting to think that he's sort of a bolt out of the blue and that he's absolutely different from our historical past. And he's not. He's an extreme example of what happens when you take policies and then without any nuance at all, you decide to implement them in as crude and as crass a manner as possible. So Trump's basically taking some of these historical precedents and he's blowing them up to a level that nobody could have imagined. And he's then trying to use them in some kind of sort of populist way to enthuse his base. And so you know, basically what you're seeing, and you, you see this with his anti-Muslim proposals, you see it with his anti-Mexican rhetoric, you see it with his embrace of torture, on all these different areas, what he's doing is he's taking policy stances that were implemented in a small degree over the last few decades and were done largely covertly. And he's making them overt, and he's boasting about them, and he's making them as large and as all-encompassing as possible. And the danger is that the Republicans, because, for example, the Republicans know that the George Bush administration was complicit in ordering torture. The danger is that they now lack the language to go after Trump and say, look, you can't do this. Democracies don't do this. They don't institutionalize torture. They don't institutionalize collective punishment. They don't say that they're going to kill the families of terrorists. Democracies do not do that. Sasha Abramsky. Sasha, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. 
Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.